Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast. My name's Alex Cruikshanks, and Max will be with you in a minute to give you the second part of his history of the Iberian Peninsula. As he discussed last time, the history of Spain and Portugal, in many ways, begins with the conquest and settlement of the region by the Visigoths. A migrating people, conquering and settling as Roman authority collapsed, describes, well, just about everywhere in Europe at the time. Including, of course, the Balkans, where the new conquering settlers from the north were the Slavs. But unlike the Visigothic kingdoms, which would eventually unify into just two states, Spain and Portugal, the Slavic kingdoms would stay divided. Except for once, in the 20th century, when they came together for an experiment. An experiment called Yugoslavia. If you'd like to hear more about this story, please check out my podcast, The History of Yugoslavia, on all good podcast apps, and at ethnopolis.co.uk. But for now, back to Max, and the next chapter of the Latin American story. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 18, The Iberians, part 2. Today, we will take a closer look at the events leading up to the discovery of the Americas. We'll focus on the last few decades before 1492, so that we can obtain a deeper understanding of the political situation in Iberia at the time of discovery. Christian Iberia, during the Reconquista, was a mess of competing kingdoms slowly expanding southwards. As they fought the Muslims, they also at times fought each other, and each viewed their neighbours' territorial acquisitions with suspicion. To further complicate things, the kings and queens of these kingdoms were linked by a complex web of marriages. Many rulers were, in essence, part of the same extended family, although they would sometimes split off to form new cadet dynasties, Families with their own coats of arms and names, but still related by blood to the families which they'd split off from. Marriages were made to create alliances, and to consolidate power within this small group of people. But it also led to infighting, as various family members had competing claims on the various kingdoms. As the 1400s dawned, however, the peninsula had amalgamated into three main polities. Leon, Asturias and Galicia, they had all been absorbed and Navarra had been sidelined into a tiny area in the Basque country. The three main polities, then, were Portugal, Castile, and Aragon. Way back in the 11th century, the Count of Portugal had managed to assert his independence in what is today the north of the country. He had been a vassal of Leon. However, Leon and Castile were fighting each other, so the king was unable to do much about his claim to independence. From that point on, for a while, The Counts of Portugal lived in a sort of grey area, semi-independent, but not officially recognised. In 1128, however, the status of Portugal as a kingdom was formally recognised when a man named Alfonso defeated his own mother in battle. She herself had previously tried to win this recognition by attacking Leon. Interestingly, 
Aside from being defeated by her own son, the Leonese king who she'd originally rebelled against was in fact her half-sister. Confusing, I know, but I did warn you that Iberian politics at the time was a messy family affair. The upshot of all this was that Portugal became a kingdom on level standing with the other Iberian kingdoms. It quickly completed its reconquista down the western edge of the peninsula. The capital was moved south to Lisbon, and its borders would remain stable from this point onwards. So now we know how Portugal came to be. The two other polities of the 1400s were Castile and Aragon. Castile occupied the centre of Iberia, while Aragon occupied what is now Catalonia, parts of today's Spain on Catalonia's western side, and this was the Aragonese heartland. And, as time went on, they also gained land further down, towards Valencia. As this kingdom occupied Iberia's Mediterranean coastline, it focused its efforts in this direction, and it also ruled the Balearic Islands, Sardinia, Sicily, and most of the Italian peninsula south of Rome. Now last episode, I spoke of how the Reconquista was completed, and so the Iberians needed a new challenge. Well, this is true, but it's not exactly true. For all intents and purposes, the war was won, but in the far south, the small emirate of Granada still held out. In the period covered in this episode, Granada still just about makes up the final polity on the peninsula. It won't have a role in the story, however. It was beaten in 1492 by Castile and Aragon, the same year that Columbus discovered the Americas, and so finally, the Muslim presence on the peninsula was completely erased. This makes 1492 a doubly momentous year. Now again, I'm going to have to correct myself. Saying that the presence of the Muslims was erased is technically incorrect. They were destroyed politically, but Muslims were allowed to stay until 1609, albeit under nasty conditions. We'll discuss the expelling of the Muslims from Spain when we reach that period of history in later episodes. But, seeing as we're here, I may as well briefly mention the status of the Jews. Now they had lived and thrived under the Muslims in Iberia, but now found themselves in less favourable conditions. This was the Sephardic branch of the Jewish nation, and even today their unique strand of Jewish culture is recognised. In 1492, the year the Americas were discovered, and that very same year that Granada was finally conquered, Spain's Jewish population was expelled. The Christian royalty did not waste any time in this regard. Many of these Jews fled across the border to Portugal, but five years later, here too they were told they were unwelcome. While most left the peninsula, some converted to Catholicism. This created a group known as the Conversos, some of whom would become important characters in future Spanish and Portuguese history. Of course, these conversos who stayed lived under suspicion and were harassed by the Inquisition. Some, however, probably did continue to practice their faith in secret. Anyway, let's get back to the main story. So Granada was clinging on in the south, sidelined and isolated from the politics of the peninsula due to being of the Muslim faith. It was now a minor player, along with Navarra, which was tiny and embroiled in a succession of civil wars. To reiterate, just for clarity, aside from these two, the three main players were Castile, Aragon and Portugal. The rulers of all three were part of the Trastamara family. As you may have guessed based on the history covered so far in this episode, family bonds did not lead to peace and harmony. Instead, they often led to fierce competition and succession disputes. 
having dealt with some of the Game of Thrones-style family feuding in Portugal a few centuries before. Let's move on to another round. Now Castile was ruled by King Enrique, an ineffectual ruler with only one daughter to pass the throne onto. To compound his succession woes, there were rumours that his daughter was not actually his, and was instead the product of an affair his wife was having with a minor member of the Castilian nobility. The second in line to the throne was his half-sister, Isabella, who Enrique attempted to marry to practically anyone of any standing in Western Europe, in order to create an alliance which might have given him some clout, and which he could use to shore up his position. Although she spent her formative years living under semi-house arrest at the orders of Enrique, she would grow into a strong, canny woman with ambitions of her own. She secretly arranged to marry the Prince of Aragon, Ferdinand, who also happened to be her second cousin. And after receiving special permission from the Pope, the ceremony was conducted without Enrique's knowledge. This would prove to be a masterstroke. If you only know one thing about how the nation of Spain came to be, then this marriage is the thing to know. By doing so, assuming that Isabella could get herself onto the throne of Castile, the marriage ensured that the two large kingdoms of Castile and Aragon would be united, with each spouse ruling their own. Any children they produced would be heir to both kingdoms, consolidating them under the power of one person. She still had to get herself onto that throne, however. Ferdinand's accession to become king of Aragon was fairly simple. The only other male child his father had produced had died, giving him a clear path to the crown. Isabella, however, and the kingdom of Castile faced an uncertain future. Enrique's daughter, the one of dubious origin, had been first in line. However, he had recently divorced her mother. This muddied the waters when it came to succession, and it was not clear which of the two women would inherit. On the one side was Isabella, his half-sister. On the other was Juana, his daughter by an old marriage, whose parentage was in fact questioned by many. If she wasn't even his daughter, she had no claim to the throne at all. Everyone held their breath. Enrique died five years after Isabella and Ferdinand's marriage, meaning that the issue was about to come to a head. The peninsula was about to be plunged into war. As soon as she heard the news of her brother's death, Isabella hid herself in the walled town of Segovia, unsure of what would happen next. It was a delicate situation. It was unclear who the various nobles of Castile would judge to be the rightful queen, and what's more, with the neighbouring monarchs all being so closely related, they were sure to have an opinion on the matter. This was where her marriage to Ferdinand proved to be such a clever political move. Although he had not yet inherited Aragon, Isabella could count on the kingdom's armies to support her if it came to war. Juana, however, came from the Portuguese branch of the family, and it soon became apparent that Portugal was considering supporting her claim to Castile. In order to ensure their support, Juana hastily married the Portuguese king, who was also her uncle. To further complicate things, at the time Aragon was heavily involved in Navarra's civil wars, and the smaller kingdom was semi-absorbed at this point into Aragon. In this part of the peninsula, they were also involved in a border dispute with France, and this drew France into the war. Now, to go properly into Navarrese politics and France's involvement would make things even more complicated, so I'll leave it at this. France would take Juana's side in order to undermine Aragon, but their involvement would be limited, 
and largely confined to Navarra. So again, just to add clarity, as there are so many players involved, Isabella was supported by Aragon, while Juana was supported by Portugal. Aragon was partially distracted and partially supported by its involvement in Navarra, and this also meant that France came in on the side of Juana. Which side the various Castilian lords would commit their troops to was yet unknown. I hope that's clear. Now having established all that, I'm going to skip over the war. To put it simply, the war, known today as the War of Castilian Succession, would last for four years, and in the end, Isabella would be victorious. The Treaty of Alsacovas was signed, and her status of Queen of Castile was secured. Juana gave up her claim to the kingdom, and was packed off to a monastery to live out the rest of her days. During the war, Ferdinand's father had died, making him King of Aragon. Now the couple reigned as dual monarchs, and most of what is now Spain was united, although the two kingdoms still technically existed as separate entities. So why did I skip over the details of this war? Well, let me explain. It's obvious that this war was first and foremost a petty squabble between inbred family members looking for power. The terms of the peace treaty, however, give us an insight into the wider political situation, and it's for this reason I consider the treaty to be more important than the war itself. I could have spent some time discussing the different battles of the war, but I think with our interest in Latin America, the treaty is much more important and interesting. This period had long been marked by a rivalry between Castile and Portugal, and this had run parallel to the personal rivalries of their rulers. Both nations had expanded into the Atlantic, with Spain taking the Canary Islands, and Portugal taking Madeira, the Cabo Verde Islands, and eventually the Azores. There was a growing realisation that as technology allowed for longer voyages, there were advantages to be had and money to be made by visiting other places. Also realised was that Iberia was perfectly placed on the edge of Europe to do this. The biggest advantage they wished to capitalise on was spice. Now the spice trade and its importance has been talked about at length in other podcasts, and in general, so I'll only give a basic outline here. Spices such as cloves and nutmeg were produced in Asia, with the Maluka Islands of Indonesia being particularly important. They were exceedingly useful for food preservation, and for hiding the taste of spoilage in an age before refrigeration. Back then, people didn't have the luxury of being picky and throwing away food that had gone off. Spices reached Europe overland and along trade routes on the Indian Ocean. From here, they then passed through the Muslim lands of the Middle East. This made them extremely expensive by the time they reached Europe, and the market was cornered by Arab middlemen. The situation had been aggravated by the recent fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks. Now there was no cordial Christian Byzantine empire in the Middle East, and prices rose even further. Being able to obtain spices directly would make you extremely rich. It would stop you having to pay the high prices yourself, and it would mean that you could become the middleman who added a markup to prices when you sold them to the rest of Europe. Attempts to achieve this were already underway. Aside from the Atlantic islands, colonies had been set up on the west coast of Africa. It was the Portuguese who had been most intrepid in their explorations, and they gradually explored further and further down the West African coast. By the time of the War of Castilian Succession, 
they had already established trading settlements in various spots in Guinea, known as Fechoias. Here they traded in local goods, as well as slaves. These initiatives were led by Enrique the Navigator, the first of many famous Portuguese explorers. His discoveries initiated the idea that perhaps Africa could be circumnavigated and the Spice Islands reached by this route. In 1488, less than ten years after the end of the war, and four years before Columbus's adventures, another Portuguese explorer would round the southern cape of Africa, proving that this was in fact a genuine possibility. The Portuguese would succeed in 1498, when Vasco da Gama reached India, but this is slightly beyond the scope of today's episode. So the Iberian nations had already started experimenting with colonialism. Their new lands on the Atlantic islands and the West African coasts were important. But, even more important, was what the Iberians did with these discoveries. The climate of the Canary Islands, Madeira and Cabo Verde, they were perfect for growing sugarcane. Up until this point, sugar had been a rare commodity in Europe, grown by Muslims in the Middle East and on a very small scale in Cyprus, Sicily and southern Iberia. What both the Spanish and Portuguese did with their islands was create the first plantations. With the help of an advisor brought in from Aragon's Sicilian possessions, they transformed the growth of sugarcane into a large industry. It became the first cash crop and created a reliable income stream. For us, with our interest in Latin America, this is extremely important. It was on these islands that Spain and Portugal would experiment with the economic social and political structures that would define Latin America. First, the native Guanche people of the Canary Islands were enslaved and eventually killed off by the Spanish. Then, a reliance on cash crops and plantations was established. As we shall see, this would be replicated on a truly enormous scale in the Americas. Finally, the first trickles of African slaves, brought in from the Fechoias of West Africa, were put to work on these plantations. Again, this is something which will be replicated on a larger scale in the New World. Knowing all this, let's go back to that peace treaty and examine its clauses. The first issues it dealt with were related to the political claims of the various players in the war. Alongside Juana, Portugal gave up any claim to influencing the internal politics of Castile, and in return Isabella agreed to give up any claim to Portugal. The nobles who had supported Juana were pardoned, allowing Castile to heal its divisions under Isabella. Portugal also gained monetary compensation from Castile. The rest of the treaty, however, dealt with formalising the situation outside of Iberia and had nothing to do with the personal ambitions of Juana and Isabella. Portugal was given exclusive rights to conquer the Kingdom of Fez, modern-day Morocco, I can't help but wonder what the leaders of Fez thought about this bit of the treaty. Castile's rights to the Canary Islands were confirmed, however Castile had to recognise that Madeira, West Africa, the Azores and the Cabo Verde Islands would always be Portuguese. Furthermore, Castile was forced to give up the rights to exploration south of the Canary Islands. This would be the prerogative of Portugal alone. This meant that any future discoveries in Africa and beyond into Asia and the Spice Islands, if a route around Africa could be discovered, they were off-limits to Castile. Although, as we shall see, Ferdinand and Isabella would ponder further exploration in this direction, in violation of the treaty, this must have been a factor 
in their decision to allow Columbus to find an alternative route across the Atlantic. The importance of the War of Castilian Succession for the future of the Americas, then, cannot be understated. Firstly, it simply established the entities of Spain and Portugal. Although the process was not yet finished, and there will be future developments on this front, the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella began the unification of Spain, and Portugal's future as a separate nation within its contemporary borders was established. Their respective spheres of influence outside of Iberia also began to take shape at this time, as did their rights to further exploration. This would soon be cemented by the Treaty of Tordesillas, which we will discuss in a future episode. As long as this first treaty was in force, it would also mean that Spain needed to look westwards in their efforts to reach Asia, rather than east. Finally, by giving both nations stable colonies in the Atlantic, it would also establish the model of colonisation, which would be replicated in the Americas. So, in 1492, this is how Iberia sat. Portugal, a newly unified Spain, sat in an uneasy peace, with their differences nominally resolved, but with the possibility of a flare-up hanging over them. Portugal was growing rich thanks to their explorations and colonies, and Spain had established itself on the Canary Islands. It wanted to do the same. The focus, however, was on the east rather than the west, and although it was theorised that the Spice Islands could be reached across the Atlantic, aside from a few remote islands, all that was known about in that direction was water. Incidentally, the idea that everyone except Columbus thought the world to be flat is a myth. Join me next time as we lay the groundwork for our first truly narrative episodes. We will discuss the various theories as to who exactly Christopher Columbus was and how he came to set off on his explorations. And if you're looking for something to listen to in the meantime, why not check out the history of Yugoslavia?